This week on Merchants of Change, we've got Pat McGregor. Pat played hockey at BU where he was a captain before starting his sales career at Resilient. Today, he's a sales director at Gartner. Here he is, Pat McGregor. I'm JR Butler, co-founder and CEO of The Shift Group, and you're listening to Merchants of Change. This is a podcast about transferring the skills and behaviors we acquire as athletes and military veterans into becoming a professional salesperson. Each week, we'll introduce you to a top performer who will help us understand how they became professional merchants of change. What's up, kid? Today on the show, we've got Pat McGregor. Pat, thanks for being on the show. Thanks, JR. Appreciate it. Happy to be here. Of course, as, as we were just talking about, man, this, this show, Merchants of Change, is, is we built it for new salespeople and, and really more for people who are even considering or curious about a career shift into sales. And our mission at Shift Group, obviously, is we, we help elite athletes and military veterans become elite sales professionals. So we try to target our guests that are you know former athletes or veterans who've found success in sales. And from an episode structure perspective, we, we go sports, then transition, and then we get into some lessons that you've learned along the way in, in sales and business. Good plan? Let's get her going. Appreciate it. I love it. I love it. So first question, very broad for a reason. Um, I'm going to say, recall some of your favorite memories of playing hockey. Where does your mind drift off to? Definitely a loaded question. Um, I have about a million memories from my playing days, but, you know, as I think about that, I immediately drift to the locker room, right? That's one of the biggest things. Yeah. I talk to a lot of former athletes. That's, that's one of the areas that a lot of people don't understand was so important to us, you know, at, at a young age and even playing in college and pro, um, but just being around the boys, being around the guys, being around fun coaches, having those one-off conversations with your stallmate. Like those are things you like you take for you don't take for granted, you know, now it, it's just so important. The bonding we had in those locker rooms, as well as some of the good coaches I had. Right. I it's I was very fortunate to have some, you know, historic great coaches in my career who taught me so much and life lessons that I still utilize today, you know, in the sales world. But I think overall it's everyone was working for that common goal. Right, that common goal of not only winning the next game, but winning the championship. And I always bring it back to working out in the gym. When all the boys are working out in the gym, we're having a great time, but we're in there for a reason. You know, we want to squat more each year, bench press more each year, be faster on the speed ladder, because ultimately it was going to make us a better player. Right. And those are things that we don't have as much anymore being out of hockey that you miss. Uh, especially that weight room and stuff that wasn't even involved like on the ice. So like yeah. those are the biggest things I miss. I love it. As a, as a certified locker room guy, chief culture officer, I, I 100% agree with that, that first one. And I think the, the, the like exposure to great leadership gets discounted in terms of the importance that you get out of playing at the, at the level you played at. Um, yep. Obviously, you played for a complete legend, um, but you know every athlete, every veteran, you're you're playing or or you know 
um, serving under these people who, to your point, these are, these are things that you take on no matter what you decide to go do. So thank you for calling that out. It's awesome. Um, you played for some great teams. You had some awesome teammates. When you look back at some of your favorite teammates from BU, what are like their common traits or characteristics that, that like some of your favorite teammates over your career had in common? Yeah, it's funny. So I made the jump from Avon Old Farms to Boston University. And for me, that was a, a pretty large jump. Um, you know, my first practice, I'll never forget, you know, seeing Charlie Coyle. Yeah, Charlie, Charlie was in my freshman class. Um, I came in the BU when I just turned 20 years old. Uh, Charlie was 17 years old. And you can just see a distinct difference in the way that he played the game and moved the hockey puck. And yeah, that's that natural ability is one thing, but what really impressed me about Charlie was every little detail he did was to get him better at his own craft. So when we had a mandatory or even an optional stretch for 15 minutes, he would stretch for 30, right? Like if it was an optional skate, he'd be on the ice. And he was so regimented because in his mind, you know, he obviously wanted to play in the NHL. He was a first round draft pick, but you know, he amazed me with his work ethic every single day on and off the ice. He always seemed to do the right things when it was nutrition, it was in the gym. And he kind of led by example as a freshman at BU. And I immediately kind of attached, you know, to that and realized like, okay, these are the little things that I need to do to get better. And he always kept you up on your feet and on your toes. So in terms of like hockey, raw talent, like regimented individual, Charlie Coyle is the first guy that comes to mind. Uh, number two would be, you know, my D partner, Garrett Noonan. And, and Garrett taught me a lot of very interesting things throughout my career. You know, I was someone where if I made a mistake in the first five minutes against Boston College, I'd be thinking about that mistake for, you know, the rest of the game where Garrett can go out there, make a mistake, forget about it in three and a half minutes, go out for his next shift and just get things done. And I cherish Garrett so much because he was able to advocate for me. You know, he wanted to bring the best out of me and he did. Um, and I never wanted to disappoint my teammates. I definitely did not want to disappoint my D partner every game. So he was someone that always kept me on my toes always kept me uh, regimented and wanted to be better each and every day. So those two guys are the guys that come to mind very quickly. I love it. And, and one of those two guys is a sales guy now. Um, and I think our audience can guess which one, um, but I love, I love the, the whole Noonan family, just unbelievable people. And, and that's really cool to hear that, that Garrett, you know, memory of a goldfish, dude, that's awesome. Yeah. How do you think, how do you think your teammates would describe you? Um, hopefully uh, it's someone that always did the right thing, right? I was never the best player. I had to work for every single inch throughout my hockey career for ice time. And I knew that if I made one mistake, it might cost me, you know, being in section 117 the next night. You know, I wasn't able to make those same mistakes as maybe other people were. Um, so someone that always showed up, always was ready to go, last one off the ice, first one on the ice, uh, someone who always worked hard in the gym and pushed other, other individuals. Uh, but my big thing was team culture and being team oriented. 
So let's say I wasn't getting a lot of playing time my freshman year, and I wasn't in the in the stand, and I, I was in the stands, like always being that team guy, always being the locker room guy, the glue guy, someone who kept everybody together. Um, that was kind of my mission, and hopefully it resonated with my team uh, throughout the four years I was there. Dude, here's a here's a glue guy stat for you: sixty-one blocks shots. Are you kidding me? I don't think I've ever seen that before. That's unbelievable. That's only because they didn't, they couldn't put my goals because I didn't, because I didn't have any. So they had, to, they had to come up with some type of positive, uh, positive structure for my for my bio for everyone. Um, that's a really good. That's a really good chance that that's in there for that reason. But uh, no, I was a shutdown defenseman, man. I, I played on penalty kill. I was out there in defensive situations. I was physical. I played the body. I had three jobs. Don't don't lose a puck battle. Play hard and get the puck to you know the forwards and move up ice. And it was, I I just fell in that role throughout my college career because in high school that wasn't really what I was what I was doing in high school. I was more offensive. Yeah. So I adapted and overcome. And my first meeting with Jack Parker, he's like, "You're not going to play it the same way you do at Avon. You know that, right?" And I'm like, "Yeah, I do now." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's. It's a different game. You're 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 on Calm Ave versus you know playing in the Nepsack against you know uh, like Bridgeton Academy putting up you know 12, 12 to two games. So I can I can relate to that coming from Cushing to Holy Cross. Um, I can relate to a lot of what you just said. I'm also a defenseman and did not have a ton of offensive touch uh, going into college. So now you you you're playing for one of the in my opinion, one of the most storied programs in the country from a college hockey perspective on Com Ave, you know, toast to the town 2014. And I bet you just can't wait to put on a headset and start updating Salesforce. Right. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about it. Like your transition, how did you end up in sales? Were you like looking at or thinking about other other career paths at the time? Yeah, it's a great question. And, you know, I talk about this often with, with new graduates and you're confused. You know, when you're in a college like BU where the common goal is to play in the NHL by 95% of the, the athletes, you kind of gravitate towards that goal and you want that to be the case. Uh, for me, I never really had full optimism that I was going to play in the NHL, right? It just wasn't the career path that I didn't think my game had that ability. So I had to start thinking about that during college. I, I did end up playing one year in the East Coast League. Um, and the reason for that for me was to have the extra time to figure out what I wanted to do while also playing pro hockey and getting paid to play, you know, the 500 bucks a week or whatever they gave me. It, it paid for my groceries once a week and that was about it. But I utilized that time in a little bit of a different way than a lot of my teammates did in, in the East Coast League, right? I probably had 60 phone calls throughout that season with so many different types of hockey alumni. And obviously in the hockey world, everything's so small, but I didn't really start thinking outside the box, outside of hockey until like my senior year of BU. And most kids have internships. Most kids do internships in the summer. I didn't have that ability. We had to be at the rink. We had to be in class in the summer. We had to work out. So that extra year of pro hockey gave me the ability to sit back, have those cups of coffee, 
have those conversations with as many people as I possibly could in different industries to figure out what the hell I wanted to do with my life. Right. So like that's how I started to kind of figure thing out was just through calls, through cups of coffee and talking to different people in different industries. Is, is there a conversation or like an epiphany moment that you can recall where you're like, I, th I think I want to go, I want to go into sales. I want to, I want to sell, you know, technology did, did, or was it like an amalgamation of all those conversations? There is. And I'm actually going to shout out a second Noonan uh, in, this, <laughs> in this podcast and it's Coleman Noonan, uh, yep. Garrett's brother, and he was in sales. And I had a conversation with, with Coleman and he was in sales and he asked me the simple question, you know, what motivates you? And it was simply like, man, I want competition. I want to make as much, much money as I possibly can fast. I'm not going to go be a doctor. I'm not going to be a lawyer. Like, what is it that I'm going to be able to do that my assets and my lifelong lessons have taught me? Like, where can I thrive? He's like, you got it. You got to get into sales. Like it will bring you back to that locker room. It'll bring you back to the stuff that motivated you when you played hockey, whatever you, the work you put in, you're going to have a result from that work. You're going to get that commission, right? So you're in control of your own destiny. And right there, I was like, all right, that's where I'm going to go. Cause I was talking to people in commercial real estate, medical uh, device sales. Again, that's a sales career, but you know, he stored, it kind of steered me towards tech sales yeah. and in the cybersecurity world. Um, and that's where I kind of just started researching and figuring stuff out. And he was able to connect me with the right people and with his connections. And after a few conversations, I'm like, okay, now I got to pick a company and apply and go from there because it seemed like the right place for me to be. That's awesome. That's awesome. And, and that's candidly, you're lucky that that happened. And that's why I started shift group is because I don't think, people should be lucky to have that conversation. That's the conversation we have with 450 athletes and veterans every single month is what you just mm -hmm. described. So that's really cool to hear. Um, so your first gig, you're a BDR um, at Resilient. What, like, what, what do you remember about that first gig? gig? What, what was hard and what came easy? Everything was hard, right? <laughs> like I remember, I'll never forget that, that T ride from uh, Southie to Cambridge for my first day as a BDR, you know, it was such a different environment for me to be in. I didn't know if I was going to be good at it. I didn't know who I was going to meet that day. I didn't know much about the VP of sales and I was showing up on my first day and hopefully it was going to go well. And I figured it out from there. But even at that moment, I was still unsure if this was going to be the right decision for me. Um, so that, question of was it hard? Absolutely. Um, but what I had to do was I had to ask for a ton of help. Yes. And that's a humbling experience. So my first day when I joined this company was very humbling for me. You know, I wasn't stepping on the ice anymore in the summer at a college pro skate and I felt like I fit in and everyone was at my caliber. I was walking into an environment where people were thriving at it and I never even spent a day in it. So being a BDR for me, um, it took a little bit of time for me to grasp. And it's hard work. It's very tedious work. It, it takes a lot out of you. But they always say, and this is really true in sales, you have to start somewhere. Yeah. 100%. What, what would you, 
um, what would you do differently if you could go back to that first 12 months? Is there some, is there anything that you would do differently? You think? Yeah, I would invest into learning a little bit more Yeah, in terms of like books, things like that. Like I'm a very visual learner. Yeah. Um, and I was, I, I wish early on I was shadowing more calls. I was, again, I was just trying to get my feet wet. And as a BDR, my role was very simple. I had to make a hundred calls a day, cold calls. I had to do a thousand emails a day. And the whole purpose of that was to set up calls for my account executive to close that business. And you just felt like you were um, starting deals and doing the hardest part, then passing them off to your your AE. But that whole process, I tell everyone, it's to weed people out, right? That process is if you excel in this and you do the right things and you show up every day and you're dialed in, as you guys like to say, you hopefully will become an AE within a year's time. Right, right. And, and, I, and I think like it's hard at that age, but I, what I see, I see this now with the, with the folks we work with, there's like a, there's like a, a switch that, that goes off where I think initially, and I, I felt this way at the beginning, like you go to, I'm going to work, I'm going to my job, like I got to go do my job. And then at some point you realize the opportunity and you start thinking about it like a career and when you think about it like a career, then you start thinking about development and like becoming a student of the game, reading the books, listening to the podcast, watching the YouTubes. And it's it makes everything a lot more enjoyable when you're realizing that work. It's just like you talked about going into the gym, dude. Like when you realize that work you're putting in isn't about the bench press. It's about the fact that you're going to be a better hockey player. You're going to be a better sales rep, which means you're going to make more money. You're going to have a better career. That's, I think the switch. If, if we can figure out how to make that switch go off sooner for people, companies are going to have a lot more success with early career sellers. A hundred percent. I I'm a very goal oriented person. I always look at my life in five year increments. You know, when you're a PBR, you got, that's what you got to do. You have to think about your life in five years. Now you don't even know where you're going to be in five years sometimes in the sales world. And things tend to work out for the people that put the effort in and people who are lifelong learners. You know, I run a team of five individuals and my biggest thing is I want people who are lifelong learners, people who are hungry, because I'll go to bat for any of those people, right? Day in and day out. And you're right, like reading those books when you're home at night and not throwing on Netflix and, you know, researching different tactics. And it's one of those things where you start to think about 24 seven um, and that's how you're building your craft like every single day, right? Like, yeah, that's most important. So good. Um, now I was talking to Sully before and he, and he said, you know, it feels like you're, you're really in a good place right now in your current role at Gardner. Um, what is it like, talk a little bit about finding that right role that feels good for you. How do you know when you, when you found the right spot? And, and listen, I always tell people like, this isn't 1990. You're not going to be at the same company for 25 years. So don't plan on that. But sometimes you find that Goldilocks. What, is, what does that look like for you? Yeah, I'll, I'll preface this by saying everybody's different. Totally. You know, everybody's looking for different things, right? I, I have friends who wouldn't want my job. I have friends who would love my job. Like it really depends on what motivates you and what you want. Yeah. So for Gartner, what I quickly learned is how strong the culture was. 
again, I, I prefaced it earlier, like I'm big on culture. Like when you played for a great hockey team, what was the common denominator? Great culture, right? That was number one. I also felt like the company cared, right? From the vice president level, even the C-level executives, everyone cared about you and you weren't necessarily just a serial number on the wall, right? I worked for a startup like Resilient, IBM bought Resilient. So I worked for a 100-person company and a 500,000-person company back-to-back. What I quickly realized was the large organizations weren't necessarily for me. It's not what I wanted with my life. I also had a lot of individuals that I worked with who jumped back to a startup right away. That's what they want. That's what motivates them. That's fine. I wanted somewhere where I can see growth, where I can see more of a career, right? Where I felt like the company was advocating for my growth based off my potential and based off the work that I was putting in. And I also love what I sell. And I say it all the time, when you're passionate about the thing that you sell, it's going to come across that way on calls. And that's how I feel like Gartner. So I can obviously see myself here for as long as they would like me to be here um, for those very reasons, because I, I kind of created that, they created that loyalty with me and they were able to kind of guide me to where I wanted to be in a very quick time frame of five years being in yeah. leadership. Yeah. That's amazing. Um, and, and, you're right. Gartner has an amazing, amazing product suite. Um, I've been a customer of Gartner in every role I've had. Um, I'm curious, like you, you, you talked about the question that Coleman asked you, are, are do you ask, I'm sure you get calls from BU guys and, and hockey guys all the time, other than sending them to shift group. Um, what, like, what kind of guidance do you give a hockey player that's curious about sales? And are there, are there other questions you ask to make sure it's a good fit? Yeah, of course. You know, like Coleman asked me, right? Like what motivates you? Kind of getting into the nitty gritty, like just for someone who isn't actually in a role yet or hasn't been in a sales role yet, we kind of get into like the levers of what motivates you. You know, I want to make sure that, because again, sales is not an easy job. If it was an easy job, everybody would do it, right? You're going to have peaks and valleys. That's That's what athletics teaches you, right? And that's what being in the Marine Corps teaches you or any type of veteran. It's you have to know how to deal with peaks and valleys and stay neutral. And that comes over time just with confidence and conviction in your own craft. But I ask those questions to get a general understanding of, you know, why should I hire you? Right. I'm in a hiring role. So why should I hire you over somebody else? And as well as research companies, right? If you're in the mix and you want to try to find different companies, you know, there's a certain key things that I like to look for. You know, one is, you know, how many of those reps are hitting that OTE number that they're telling you that they're going to give you, right? Is it 5%? Is it 50%? You know, that's a tall tale sign, like how the company is doing, as well as what's the turnover in that organization? Have a lot of AEs left recently, have a lot of upper level management left recently. Like those are all things that you have to look into, right? You're not going to be able to go into an interview and tell them what territory you want, right? You're not going to be able to kind of make your own bed, if you will. So you have to make sure that you're joining a company that fits you, whether that's culture, whether you like that leadership, you see that growth potential, but most importantly for a new person, what's like the training? What am I gonna learn? Like this is the most important job I'm going to take in my career because it's going to catapult me to my next, 
like job. Like, what am I going to learn in this first year being a BDR? And those are all questions I like to say people should be asking in those interviews. I, I agree on literally every front that you just uh, that you just hit on a hundred percent. We 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 spend a lot of time at the very beginning of our 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 curriculum talking about crafting a story um, because most of the folks we work with this is their first job right you don't get to do internships um, when you're when you're spending the summer at boils right um, so I'm curious to know like how you you were you were ahead of the game you had all these conversations. How did you tell your story in that interview process with Resilient and anything you would you would tweak now that you look back at it? Yeah, you know, it's a great question. You know, I kind of went back to when I was in prep school and trying to, to play college hockey. You know, I was someone that was not a five-star recruit. You know, I wasn't someone that every single school in the country was trying to recruit. Um, BU came to me late my senior year when offered me then, and I was wow. – I would say the panic button was about to go off, uh, deciding on where I wanted to go. I had other schools in the mix, like a Quinnipiac, for instance. Um, and I didn't know literally where I was going to go to college in the next four months. Um, and when they came in uh, and offered me, it was like every single weight was lifted on my shoulders. Um, but it didn't stop there because I knew once I got to Com Ave, I had to work every single day to be in the lineup. I had to do everything right. I dealt with adversity at a very young age. I think most athletes feel that way. Um, you know, we're able to ride peaks and ride valleys, and we've dealt with challenging experiences. Um, but for me, being an athlete, some of the attributes I really like to call out is coachability, right? When, when you're going into a sales role and your director or VP realizes how coachable you are, if you're moldable, you're in a great spot, right? People who want to come in, not really, you know, abide by the whole crawl, walk, run approach. Those are typically the people who might get weeded out a little bit quicker because there's a reason why those leaders are in their position. They got there for a reason. So coachability, dealing with adversity at a young age, you know, people usually associate, oh, you played it for you. Yeah, you're a captain, but I wasn't captain because I was the best player. Right. That's a fact. Like, it's a whole cold, hard fact. Like you can look at the stats. Um, <laughs> 61 block shots. 61 block shots, no goals in 150 games. That's about right. So kind of going through my whole story there and, you know, explaining to the hiring manager, listen, th I dealt with a lot of these things and I want to learn. I'm a lifelong learner and I'm hungry to learn. I want to make money. Like those are some, like, that's how I kind of crafted my story and getting that buy-in, that mutual respect and agreement from them saying, if we hire you, we will help you get to where you want to be based off those traits. Yep. Right. Cause I didn't have the knowledge base, but I had the traits and yeah. most people I bet that you work with at the shift group, most athletes, most veterans, they have those traits instilled into them from lifelong experiences from a very young age. Totally. Totally. And, and those literally everything you said, it's one of our core values as a company is coachability. It's it's we'd say account. You need to be accountable, you need to be coachable and you need to be authentic. And that means authentic effort. And yep. and, you know, you need to get 
confident so that you can deliver whatever message it is as yourself, right? Because you don't want that like Johnny sales guy that's like, we're a platform that does X, Y, and Z. It's like, no, dude, talk to him like a human. And you can't really do that until you get comfortable. And speaking, speaking of that skills and that knowledge gap, like it's a new world, man. Even, even from when you started, it's only been, you know, nine, eight or nine years, but the world has changed. It's changed significantly since I entered the job market in the early 2000s. If, if you had an opportunity to talk to a BDR now, away from the intangible characteristics, but more about this, the, the skill and knowledge stuff, where would you say like, hey, you should focus a big percentage of your time on X? What would X be? Yeah, be different. So what I, what I mean by that, and I'll expand on it, is most BDRs are all entry level. Typically, there's someone who's just entering their sales career or someone right out of college. And they're all doing the same things, right? Everyone's sending the 1,000 emails a week. Everyone's making the 100 phone calls a day. What are you doing different to let the leadership understand that you are building your brand internally, that you want this, that you're hungry? And that comes from asserting yourself early. And you might not know everything right off the bat, but there's a lot of creative things that go on on a daily basis where you can help other individuals out on the BDR bullpen, right? Like, what are you using for an email? Have you tried this? Um, have you tried this type of tactic when you make a cold call? Um, and also something that I did, you know, probably within the first four or five months of joining the job was I started shadowing AE calls, right? That doesn't take a lot for an AE to say, you know, yeah, sure. You can join on my call. No problem. Like it wasn't a big deal. We just got into a huddle room or I joined the WebEx call and I just listened. And it's all about being a sponge because you're going to come across really talented account executives in your first job, and you might come across individuals who are at that same caliber. So you can kind of figure out like, what's this person doing that this person isn't doing? And if you are not involved in shadowing and on those calls, and you get hired as an AE in the first 10, 11 months, you're kind of getting thrown into a fire and not really knowing what you're getting yourself into. And you have a $2 million quota over your head that you're trying to achieve. But I always tell every BDR, do your job every single day, have a routine with that job, block off your calendar, do all the stuff that the business is asking you to do, but you also have to build your brand and you also have to assert yourself to be different. It's the same thing as when you go to an NHL combine. What's going to make that second round draft pick different from the third round draft pick, right? And it's the same exact process. And that's like the biggest thing being a BDR is being assertive, being proactive, they're not going to tell you to do it. Right. So you need to be proactive. You need to do it on your own. You're on mute. Good advice. That's a, that's a clip right there. 100%. Um, you talked about, you, you moved into leadership now at Gartner. Um, another big transition. Curious to know, like, do you see are, are are there some carryovers from from being a captain at, at at a at an organization like BU and like how are you approaching running your team now as a sales leader? Yeah, so like I mentioned earlier, the first meeting I ever had with my team was all about culture, and that's not going to happen overnight. That is a month to month to month thing that has to get better and better and better to instill into your team. 
what I took from I right from the BU locker room, I'll give you an example. Uh, Matt Grizzlick. So Matt Grizzlick plays for the Bruins. He was in my locker room. I was Matt Grizzlick's captain. Right? I was not a better hockey player than Matt Grizzlick. What was important for me to understand was what motivated Matt Grizzlick. Right? What well, everyone is motivated differently. In the hockey locker room, there were 24 hockey players that were all motivated in a little bit of a different way. In the sales world, that's even more different, right? Because not everyone's an athlete. Not everyone comes from the same background, not cut from the same cloth, right? So for me as a leader, the most important thing is one, leading by example, but two, understanding what motivates each individual differently and helping everyone achieve their goal that we set out for in the beginning of the year. And that's why at Gartner, you know, we have monthly calls, like we call them RMPs, and they're all about where are we towards not only your professional goal, but your personal goal, whether it's lose 10 pounds, buy a house, buy the car you want, whatever it might be, there's always something there that I want to help you out. It's not just professionally, because if you're conquering your goals personally, it's only going to help you conquer your goals professionally, because we're always motivated, we're on the right track, we're regimented, we're doing the right things day in and day out. Listen, I work from home. I don't have eyes on all my team on a daily basis. It's it's more challenging now. But that's why it's so important to have that regiment even when you're at home. You know, it sounds ridiculous, but hop on the Peloton every morning at the same time. Get dressed every morning the right way. You know, go in the shower every day at the same time. It's the same thing as if you're going to the office because this is where you make your money now. It's in your home apartment. It's not in Stanford, Connecticut, where I used to have to drive 30 minutes to get to. Like, that's like the most important thing. And that's what I try to instill with all of my my uh, my team right now, because, again, I don't see them every day. So it's important to build that culture, even when it's virtually. Yeah, I, I'm a big believer that how you do anything is how you do everything. And, and that's what you're talking about. And that, like for the sales leaders listening, that motivation piece is the best advice that you can consider as a sales leader. I, I had reps that did really well. They did really well because they wanted to make a lot of money. That was it. They, they were coin operated. They like buying nice bags, but nice shoes. I'd put pictures of, of, of like a Birkin bag on a QBR deck and be like, you know, Hey, rep, rep X, you can buy four Birkin bags if you close this deal. Now let's talk about the deal. And then mm -hmm. I had reps that wanted to be CROs someday. And I would do, I would be like, Hey, we're, we're digging into this deal. If you can't tell me why it's qualified, how are you going to go tell another rep that's working for you that it's qualified? Right. So that finding that little nugget on a personal level is critical. So really good advice. Yeah. All right. Um, Pat, thank you so much for your time. We got two final questions. We ask every guest these two questions. All right. Um, First one is we, we ask every guest to highlight one of the skills that's made them elite in their career. What, what would your like one skill be you think that's that's really differentiated you? Being overly curious. And when I say that, you know, when you're talking to your clients and prospects, this is actually more of an acquired trait over my sales over my sales career. It's, you know, how do you be naturally curious with every individual that you're talking to? Right, because that resonates extremely well with those clients and prospects. On top of that, what makes you naturally curious is being an active listener and being a good active listener. There's a lot of reps right in the beginning that want to, you know, spend 80% of that qualified call time talking. 
in reality, it's really a 20-80 split. You should really talk for about 20 minutes, uh, 20 minutes and the, the client prospect should talk for probably the remainder because all you're doing is information grabbing and you just want people to talk. So active listening and also being overly curious, I think is what propelled me to where I am right now, like in my sales career. Two, two ears, one mouth, act accordingly. That's what my first my first boss used to tell me every single morning. Love He'd that. hear me on the phone and he would say, JR, two ears, one mouth, dude. Shut the, yep. shut the F up and listen. <laughs> yep. uh, it, it, it takes time though, you're right. Because it's acquired and, and it comes with preparation and all that other stuff. Yep. Um, now, last one, dude. When, when we talk about our candidates, when we talk about leaders we work with, when somebody is operating at the highest level, we like to say that they're dialed in. And it's one of the reasons we work with athletes and veterans specifically is because they know what being dialed in looks like. But how would you describe a sales professional that's dialed in? When you're dialed in, you know, the cliche term, but you're hungry, you're motivated, you're goal oriented, and most importantly, you're a lifelong learner, right? When you're dialed in, there's something out there that you want for yourself and for your family, right? You want a certain W-2 or you want, a, you know, something that is, you know, financially achievable if you do X, Y, Z. Or maybe you want to be that leader in your friend group or something. Everyone's motivated differently. But being that lifelong learner is only going to propel you to stay dialed in throughout your entire career. I love it. I love it, man. Pat, thank you so much for giving us some time today, man. We really appreciate it. This is hashtag required listening for our <laughs> candidates, man. Thank you so much, Pat. Thanks, GR. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. This wraps up this episode of Merchants of Change. If you enjoyed this episode, the most meaningful way to say thanks is to submit a review wherever you listen to podcasts. If you're interested in working with us, please come find us at www.shiftgroup.io. 